0: the intersection of youth technology and sexual violence has proven to be a dangerous place. In her new book, When Rape Goes Viral, Anna Jika explores the origins, effects, and extent of this problem, as well as the social dynamics that enable it. Listeners should be forewarned that this episode contains frank discussions of sexual assault.
1: Boys from Chicago allegedly raped a 12-year-old girl, and they filmed it on their uh, smartphones and put it up on their Facebook account. Two former Vanderbilt football players accused of sexually assaulting a female student in a dorm room when she was drunk and unconscious. The jury viewing graphic video of the alleged assault Monday.
0: Aurelie Cespedes is set to go to trial on November 27. She's accused of recording a 13-year-old being sexually abused and posting it online back in 2019. Two months ago, 16-year-old Houston, Texas student Jada was drugged and raped at a house party. The next day, Jada says she had no recollection of what had happened to her, but she later saw footage of her assault. Images and a video of the rape have been posted online.
1: Hi, I'm Anna Gita and I'm fighting for end sexual violence and image-based abuse. Sorry, not sorry.
0: Anna, thank you so much for being with us. Tell us a little bit about
1: who you are and what you do. Thank you so much for having me, Alyssa. I really appreciate it. I'm really excited to be here. I am an assistant professor of sociology at SUNY New Paltz, which is one of the State University of New York uh, campuses. And um, my research primarily focuses on the ways that gendered violence and technology intersect. And I'm particularly interested in this growing phenomenon of capturing and sharing sexual violence through digital platforms and then different ways in which digital platforms are used to perpetuate harm. This
0: is a fascinating topic and one that I think every woman can learn from, benefit from hearing your work in this area, but also can relate to, which is so just horrifying. You start your book, When Rape Goes Viral, with the stories of three young women. Can you please tell us about those women and their experiences?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I think these are names that are probably known to a lot of people. So, we have Jane Doe, who was a victim of sexual assault in Steubenville, Ohio. The assault happened in 2012, but it became very prominent in the news cycle in 2013. And then there's Daisy Coleman and Audrey Pott. And there's been documentaries about both Audrey and Daisy. Daisy is from Missouri and Audrey Pott is from California. And what the cases have in common is that all of the young women went to parties. They had Potentially too much to drink, passed out at some point. And while they were in various states of unconsciousness, they were sexually assaulted by one or more perpetrators, often in the presence of other boys, uh, some multiple witnesses. And then their um, sexual abuse was recorded on people's phones and shared through text messaging and through messaging platforms, but also on social media platforms. None of them really knew about the abuse until. Waking up after or days later and finding out from others that their abuse had been watched and consumed and commented on.
0: Your book uses the phrase you discuss image based sexual abuse. Can you describe what that means and how it differs from just sexual abuse?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. It does and it doesn't, right? So I use image-based sexual abuse. Claire McGlynn provides this definition. So the idea here is to capture the non-consensual creation and distribution of private sexual images. It is absolutely a form of sexual abuse. The problem is that we don't consider it really a sexual violation. Instead, for children and for teenagers, we talk about it often in terms of cyberbullying. Only very recently, so these cases all happened, like I said, 2012, 2013, and in the book I also talk about much more recent cases, all the way up to 2020, 2021, but when we're talking about teenagers, this language of non-consensual image-sharing, the revenge porn language, it hasn't really infiltrated the younger population. That's not, I think we're very uncomfortable talking about it as a form of sexual violence among young people. So we've come a very long way where adult survivors are concerned. But where where teenagers are concerned, we're still minimizing it and talking about it as a type of sexting, non-consensual sexting, or like I said earlier, cyberbullying. Yeah, my son, who's
0: in middle school, he has a class called digital literacy. And they cover everything from Google Doc and how to create a some sort of graph or use Word, but they don't cover social media and exactly what you're talking about, even though I feel like it is very, very common. Actually, let me ask you, how common is
1: image-based sexual abuse? This is, it's a very hard question to answer because we don't track it. There's reports that will say up to 10 to 15% of teenagers participate in some kind of non-consensual sexting. So I think that's Perhaps at best a good estimate, but if we look at rates of sexual, of image based sexual abuse among adults, I think we're upwards of, I think I want to say about one in three. So it certainly feels like it's everywhere. Yeah.
0: And going back to the digital literacy class that my son is taking, where I appreciate that it's happening, but I do see it a lot like a sex ed class where you're teaching the biology but you're not really teaching the social and the sexual responsibility or the consent or the respect or any of those things. So it always feels like we are leaving out the most
1: important part to our young people. Absolutely. It's actually disheartening to hear that because the the thing with books you always get is, oh, this was five years ago. Things have changed. And it's like, well, have they really? And so to hear that your son, who is today in middle school has the same experience as what I found five, six, seven years ago going into high schools, that's really disheartening because you're right, digital literacy is about the way we use it, it doesn't relate to digital ethics and ethical citizenship, which I think is what you're talking about. Like, is it okay if I take your photo? Digital literacy is a term you may have heard more and more about over the past few years, but what does it mean and why is it important? We increasingly communicate and access information through a variety of digital environments. Our workplaces, social lives and educational settings all require some form of competence in digital literacy. Digital literacy isn't just about knowing how to use technology. It's about navigating and communicating through different digital environments. Is it okay if I share this text message? How do I think about others when I'm sharing information? How do things exist forever? I think that's absolutely missing. How things can
0: exist forever. (laughs) Seriously, the internet is forever. You know, we talk about it in the house only because of my experience with the internet, which is lifting nudes of me from films and spreading it all over social media as a way to do me harm, even though there's copyright infringement and all the things. So we talk about it in my family because I've been directly impacted by it, but obviously not everyone is having this discussion around the kitchen table. I want to unpack, because it's something that you said before, and I want to make sure everyone understands, how does image-based sexual abuse differ from sexting?
1: Well, sexting often is consensual. Sexting is about Oh, I want to flirt, or maybe I want to share something intimate with uh, a sexual partner who I trust. There's experimentation, there's play. What there isn't is somebody without your knowledge or consent recording private or capturing private images of you. What there isn't is your sexual abuse being documented for others to laugh at. What's missing is your consent. And often, especially in the cases that I'm talking about, What's being captured is actually already a sex crime, so you're not even talking about anything like consensual sexual interactions or flirting, or you are talking about an absolute sexual violation.
0: Well, and I also feel like the idea of social media, there's like zero consent for anything popping up on your feed. The brain is not wired to deal with the amount of not only information that we get from social media, but also the quick bursts of it, also the violence of it. I don't want to open up Instagram and even though I'm well aware that there is a war going on, it feels like a violation to consistently be bombarded with images that I cannot process. I do not have it in my capacity. This is why when veterans go to war and come home, they have PTS because of what they've seen. They train for that shit. And we're getting it just like, you know, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look up what's on sale, you know, wherever. And then we're getting bombarded with these
1: images, and it's so triggering. I think you're getting really at the heart of how a lot of survivors feel. So there's a lot of conversation around, oh, you can get the image removed, or you change your email, or block people, right? Do all of the things that you can do to make sure that you stay safe and secure and can control the flow of information. But I think the really deceptive thing about social media... And these digital platforms is that they make us feel like we're in control. But in reality, we have absolutely no say over them, right? (laughs) Like they trade on sending us information, capturing information, circulating that information. And so this idea that we can control that is absurd. And I think we all know better now. But I also think for survivors, it feels like there's this perpetual threat, literally perpetual threat of being re-triggered because you don't know who has your image. You don't know who has captured it. Even if you've asked for it to be taken down and platforms have complied, you don't actually know if somebody else has screen grabbed it and is circulating it in a different space. And so that potential, that image might pop up that you're going to, like you said, you're going to open up Instagram and you're going to be bombarded with a barrage of messages or images or videos of your own violation or harassing you for being a victim. Is there constantly. And that is a lot of survivors talk about how absolutely heartbreaking that is and what a rupture it is in their lives and how it is actually more harmful than the actual sexual violation sometimes. When rape goes viral, focuses
0: specifically on young people and obviously having two young children. This is something that is very important to me. Can you just talk about how teens and preteens interact? with digital technology and how it differs from how adults use it?
1: I think 10 years ago, I would have said differs. I'm not quite sure. I think we've really merged now in our usage, but I think for young people, social media is where their lives are lit. They can't not interact with social media platforms. They can't not be on their phones because that's the equivalent of not going to school or not attending a party and hanging out with your friends or not going to the mall. You know what I mean? It's such a central part of their existence. And it's where a lot of the in-person interactions are continued digitally when they leave each other. And so it's an important site for where they perform their identity. By the age of 15, 86% of kids have a smartphone, according to Common Sense Media. And the U.S. Surgeon General says
0: 95% of teens, 13 to 17, are using social media. There are a lot of positives,
1: right? Connecting with friends, for example. But there are also some very real risks. It's an important site for where they get social validation, right? It's where they get told by their peers that they're cool, that what they're doing is interesting. I'll walk in New York City streets and I'll see people randomly stopping everywhere doing TikTok videos. Like it has really, performance of it has really taken over. So I think this idea when parents and adults in the media are constantly like, oh, we should tell our children to stop using social media. I think this is a lost cause. And I don't think it really helps them navigate social media. So where gender and where sexuality is concerned, they use it the same way that adults do, which is, like I said, to flirt, to put out images of themselves that they think are socially acceptable, desirable. They use it to communicate to each other that they're funny, that they're cool, that they're relevant for boys that they can get girls, right? It's ways to perform heterosexuality. And I talk about specifically heterosexual instances of sexual violence in the book. So that's where I want to focus. But it wouldn't change for queer groups either, right? It's how you perform your gender in a lot of ways. And so it does become this space where Oh, you know, if I'm flirting with a boy or if I'm hooking up with a girl, I'm going to capture it online somehow so I can show my friends. And I think this is the thing that's really missing when we talk about technology in young people. We're constantly talking about, oh, they don't understand that technology is forever. They don't think about what they're sharing. And it is the opposite. They really do think about what they're sharing. They're not thinking about, oh, is the police looking at my Insta feed? They're thinking all of my friends are on Snapchat and I want them all to see this thing that I just did.
0: And there's also an element of where young people almost have to build up a following on social media to succeed in certain areas of business. I think for my son, for instance, he's a very competitive baseball player. He's 12. And The whole team has Instagram accounts where we all as parents post the highlights with hopes that some college scout is going to somehow identify our children as being a right fit for their D1 school. You mentioned that how you feel like keeping the kids away from social media is a battle we won't win already out of the box. How do we, what is the solution then? Do you have any thoughts on how to keep it healthy?
1: I certainly think it's helpful to think about limiting use time, right? I'm not trying to dismiss the role of parents. I think it's the approach though. I, I don't think the approach can really be don't do X or A is bad for you and B is okay. Especially if as adults, we think about our own practices, right? Think about how many parents sexed but no their kids can't do it (laughs) or like you said you take videos of them when they're playing you're not asking for their consent you're just taking videos and you're sharing it so why would we expect kids to do something different i think it's important this digital literacy conversation that we started out with i think is a really important one to have i think technology and how we use technology what does it mean how is it built how it works i think this needs to be taught in schools as a full curriculum at much younger ages. And then I think while role-playing with technology, we're talking about using technology to experiment with identity safely, I think that learning can happen alongside parents also having real conversation with their children around responsible and ethical social media usage. How do you think
0: adolescents even view consent? Do you think that they're emotionally evolved enough to understand consent? I guess, are there differences in how they
1: understand physical versus digital consent? I think they don't think about digital consent at all. That's one thing that came across in all my research. I kept asking teens repeatedly, do you ask about, can you do X, Y, or Z when you're sharing something? Do you think about, how is this going to impact the other person? Do you think about asking for permission or consent? And every single time, the answer was, nobody's thinking about that. And I don't think social media are built for consent. Their entire mode of business is share everything all the time. The
0: accounts that I like to follow on like TikTok and Instagram are people basically just talking about their day and we're rewarding it. We're giving them those hearts and those loves and those likes. And I'm just like, why am I so fascinated by this? And I think, you know what it is? I think I know that I'm safe on these accounts, that I'm not going to be bombarded with Visuals that I don't want to see, whether they be of me or someone else or of a war or whatever it is. I feel like it's still like highlighting that part of my brain that is getting the dopamine fix on social media, but it's like the safer accounts. But
1: we also know that the unsafe accounts, the racist accounts, the misogynistic accounts, they're getting so much attention. Listen! Elon Musk has officially taken over Twitter and although he claims to promote free speech, what he really wants is for racist language and attacks to happen without consequence. And this behavior needs to be called out. After months of speculation, Musk acquired the popular social media platform and a $44 billion deal that closed last week. After it was reported that he fired Twitter's top executives, the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX quickly turned his attention to censorship. On Twitter, Musk shared that he believes the app should be an inclusive area for free speech. But what did racists do as soon as they got wind of the app's new ownership? Post hate speech, of course. Just 12 hours after Musk was in charge, the Network Contagion Research Institute found that the use of the N-word increased more than 500%. They're getting so many both social and political and material rewards, right? They have millions and millions of followers and. Teenagers might not be able to articulate the you know, specifics of the attention economy. I think they are paying attention. I do think they see, oh, it doesn't actually matter what I post or how problematic or humiliating it is. It gets likes and that gets rewarded. So that's superficial, but a fully accurate message is what they end up internalizing, right? Especially if it doesn't harm them. And if we think about online abuse, generally it's boys harming girls.
0: Yeah, I was just going to ask, are
1: there gender differences? Oh, absolutely. What's interesting amongst young people is that, especially very recent research, is showing that boys and girls tend to use social media problematically in very similar rates. So everyone is sharing things non-consensually and they're laughing at each other and they're stalking each other a little bit online, even though that's not the language that they use. But... The harms of this behavior, the consequences of it are deeply gendered, right? So for boys, it's, oh, whatever. I don't care. It's just annoying. It doesn't really cost them anything to be stopped by a girl online, whereas for a girl, it feels unsafe. And then if images of them are circulated, the consequences of that are not long lasting for boys. Girls instead are, and we know this, right? They're slut shamed. They're victim blamed. uh, Their entire reputations are ruined. And they're very, I will say, teenagers are very aware of that.
0: Someone said something so interesting to me, and I think that this is 100% true with the rise in anxiety in our young women. You know, we've all heard these stories about how women don't feel safe walking at night through a parking lot or whatever, and we use our car keys in between our fingers for defense. But we were able to go home and be someplace safe. Now. We go home and we open up social media and we're also not safe. So there's no way to get away from the threat of sexual violence, whether it be on the street or on our smartphones. And so we are constantly living in fight or flight because there's no way to get away from it.
1: I think you're right in that women have for a very long time been walking around trying to protect themselves and the dark street. We know, however, that most harm occurs at home. But I think to your point, it absolutely, because social media is everywhere and your phone is on you pretty much at all times, dinging, you know, and alerting you all the time. I do think it certainly feels like there is no escape. And that's even for somebody who's not even a victim, right? So imagine if you are a survivor. Imagine, is that ding like an email from a friend? Is it a peaceful image on TikTok or is it your rape or is it your body or is it an AI generated image of you, right? What is it? You never quite know. And so every time you go and check, it feels like a potential for victimization. And then if you are constantly in a state of, like you said, fight or flight or in a state of constantly being worried about being victimized, that means you can never move on from your victimization to begin with.
0: And how about the digital access to porn? I have a chapter in my book where I think through this a little bit. I made the mistake of going on to Pornhub to do research. And what I was presented with was like the most horrifying parade of sexual violence. Images of boys assaulting stepsisters or stepmothers who were doing chores and just horrible, degrading language and more vile things and just feeding into this violent view of sexuality. So how does porn consumption and being so readily available digitally, how does that influence digital
1: sexual assault? There's (laughs) I want to be careful here. The research is a little bit out, right? The jury's out rather. There is certainly correlation, right? So if you are watching violent porn, if you can access porn very easily and porn you right there's been multiple studies on what porn looks like nowadays even mainstream porn and it is increasingly violent and um, misogynistic i certainly definitely support the statement that um that is going to impact attitudes i'm not going to say it causes it right but it is absolutely a contributing factor because all it does is it normalizes objectifying women and degrading women and i I'm not sure that we give boys and young men and girls enough tools early on in their sexual education to analyze and critically engage with what they're seeing and deconstruct it. And so they do just take it at face value. But porn is a, it's a symptom. Part of why it has metastasized and is an industry is in a lot of ways because we really just do a terrible job with sex education. And people want to know. I think porn is very common because you can use porn in loads of different ways. For example, you could also le- you can learn like what like how the sex position is, how sex is used, and you can also use it with your friends, like for and like something to laugh with, basically. Well, boys that watch porn would um, not necessarily expect, but to look for the girls with the biggest boobs or the nicest ass. And they'd go for that sort of image because that's what the, that's what they see is the best in the media. That's 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 the nicest thing. And they want to get that so that they're they fit in with everyone.
0: Going back to my son, who's my only reference point, obviously, as for young people. But when he started playing like a grade up, an age up in baseball, I had the sex conversation with him, even though he was probably far too young to hear it. But I was so afraid that he was going to be in the dugout with these older kids, with these older boys who weren't having these conversations at home. And so my thought was, I need this to come from me. And I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Like, I don't want to make it sound like I knew what I was doing, but I needed it to come from his mother, first of all. But also I needed it to start in the home and not start in the dugout.
1: Yeah, it needs to start in the home. And you know, I'm a sociologist. For us, you should start having that conversation. Seriously, grade one, you have to talk about, oh, I don't want so and so uncle to hug me. Oh, okay, let's pay attention. Let's have this conversation around bodily autonomy. And how do I respect my kids? you know, body and their ability to say yes or no and to consent where their body's concerned. And then that builds up. But I also think this attitude of, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to try this is right. Okay, let's open up this conversation and let's continue having it because that also then normalizes it for your son to come to you and have that conversation.
0: Yeah, I just didn't want there to be a group of boys in the dugout showing him. By the
1: way, why do boys do all this in groups? What is that? That is about other boys. So there's really excellent scholarship on masculinity and group sexual violence that basically says when we are performing, boys really concern themselves with approval from their peers and the male gaze, just like women also concern themselves with the male gaze. It's 100% about what do other boys think of me? Do they think I'm performing masculinity appropriately? And in simple language, that's, am I cool enough? Do I belong? You know, do they want to hang out with me? Am I part of the group? But when you are, especially when you're part of a peer group, where those are the norms, where sharing nudes of girlfriends or checking out porn together, which is a very common thing, right? in like college level, like frat houses, really what you are doing is bonding with each other around your masculinity and that reinforces masculinity at the same time. But social media is also a group phenomenon, really, right? It's a social phenomenon. So those dynamics are also reproduced on social media. Do they not realize
0: that they are harming themselves when they post evidence of physical crimes? Do they just not have that sense of consequence?
1: Like, how does that work? This is actually the question that got me to write this entire book. The short answer is that they are not thinking about I think the adults are thinking about sex crime. I think the teenagers in the moment, they're thinking about sex, full stop. For them, when they're recording it, what they're recording is sexual activity. So what they're showing is, hey, I got some. And that's what they're sharing with their friends. There is no, this is a violation. There's sex scripts and gender norms. And there's a lot of social structures that help them minimize the sexual violence and help them distance themselves from the criminality of what they're doing, of course. But all they are capturing in that moment is evidence of like heteromasculinity. And so what they're sharing feels safe. It upsets my stomach. I'm sitting here right now. I'm just, I'm
0: like having a somatic experience. Like I'm sitting here like, where is this in my body right now? And it's in my stomach, a little bit in my neck too. <laughs> What do you wish everybody knew about adolescence, technology, social media, and sexual abuse?
1: That's a big question. I, a few things. I want them to understand that kids are really paying attention, that technology is not something that they cannot engage with. And so we really need to think as a society, as a culture, how do we create spaces and opportunities to teach? kids how to engage with technology ethically, but also how do we model that in our own behaviors? And also, which we haven't talked about yet, how do we hold both the state, right, the law and tech companies responsible for making sure that happens? How do we design platforms with these kinds of behaviors in mind so that abuse is not possible rather than designing something for profit, abuse happens, and then trying to fix it on the other side of it? That's one piece. I think we still need to do a lot of work around gender norms. I think young people are really conservative and really traditional in their views of gender and sexuality. I was really surprised at how often from young women I heard them talk about boys as aggressive, as sexual predators, And how often I also heard boys talk about how this is just their nature and that women need to cope with it, basically. And what I heard from young women is that they think this is not okay, but there was also a sort of resignation that this is just how things are. So I think we're really letting kids down. And I think that was very difficult for me to process and and come to terms with. And then I think more broadly, if we're going to talk about. What does this mean for the criminal justice system, for investigating sexual violence, for justice?
0: That was my next question. What the legal situation surrounding these assaults,
1: what are we looking at? Yeah, so I think when, especially when Steubenville happened, because it was so publicized, the trial was followed, and there were so many stories about thousands and thousands of pieces of digital evidence that came up during the investigation. Both of the defendants are hereby adjudicated delinquent beyond a reasonable doubt on all three counts as charged. It's a remarkable verdict in the sense that they used a lot of evidence that uh, is pretty modern, a lot of technology that hasn't previously been available to law enforcement to prove somebody's guilt uh, was at the forefront of the prosecution's case here. You know, other tools that prosecutors are are going to be able to use or other prosecutors have seen the prosecution's case, some lessons they may want to take from it, is that there's uh, probably something out there when you're dealing with juveniles, whether it's a text message, a Twitter post, a Facebook post, somebody out there is probably saying something about the incident that's going to lead you to find more evidence. I think there was a sense of, oh, wow, digital evidence is so powerful, and now we have this amazing tool to address sexual violence. There's a lot of very useful things about digital evidence, but that does not necessarily bear out when it comes to its investigation and its prosecution and justice more broadly.
0: Walk me through the process. What can a girl expect if she tries to report one of these assaults?
1: Okay, so if there's evidence of the assault, the existence of digital evidence will certainly help some survivors be more willing to go and report it to the police. Not all survivors, of course, are interested in engaging with the police, but let's talk about the ones that want to go to the criminal justice system. Once they go and report it, the existence of digital evidence means that police officers could be more likely to believe you and to take your case seriously. The problem is that they see the digital trail as evidence of sexual assault. They don't see it as another type of sexual violence. Does that make sense? So it's not, oh, it's sexual assault and digital abuse. It's just It's evidence of sexual assault stuff. And so they don't concern themselves with taking down the abuse, with providing survivors the services they might need around the digital abuse. And they also don't really think through what does it mean to circulate all of this digital evidence across the criminal legal system? How do survivors feel about that? But in the courtroom, especially, or in the investigation phase, it can also be helpful because it really does provide a lot of information, right? You can see who was there, the times that it happened. You can get real evidence. You know, so in the Steubenville case, the boys who assaulted Jane Doe, they flat out say, like, she was dead. She passed out. I knew she was unconscious. They're admitting their guilt. So it makes the prosecutor's job really easy. You can't say, oh, I didn't realize this was sexual assault. Well, yes, you did. You admitted it. And it can dispel some of those barriers that exist for do we really take a woman's word? Now we have evidence. And so her word becomes more reliable, more believable. I think this is complicated, right? I think we know that race and class, sexual orientation, amongst other factors, really impact whether or not you're perceived as believable. And so white women, middle-class women, those performing the ideal victim role, they're much more likely to have the digital evidence work in their favor. And then victims who are traditionally not believed the criminal justice system really depends on the case and how terrible or how detailed the abuse is. So it it can be very helpful, but it can also just re-perpetuate the same victim blaming and neglect from the criminal justice system that, some victims already experienced.
0: I'm just curious through writing this book, have you learned anything as far as how people can best protect themselves or protect their kids? I have an app called Bark. Do you know what Bark is? No. You can tell me. (laughs) Literally every single, and it feels very big brother-ish, but every single thing my son looks up, everything he's texted, everything he's emailed, will show up, not the text itself, it's basically like it mirrors what he's getting to his device, but it just tells you like, this had sexual content, or this had a curse word, or someone used a a racial slur. And it's just, do we want to be monitoring
1: every single little thing? No, but do we feel like we have to? Yeah. I think, you know, That's exactly what every parent tells me, Um, and I get that, and I'm not saying, well, I am saying a little bit, don't do that, (laughs) don't do that, Uh, but I understand why that's being done, and listen, young women are doing the same thing, right? When I was talking to 14 and 15-year-olds, they would talk about how, oh, yeah, I share nudes, but I don't put my face in them. Or, you know, I watermark now, right? Like you can have like digital signatures on all your photos. So it prevents, or, you know, if somebody shares it, who it was that shared it. So there's all these like self-responsibility, keeping yourself safe or for parents, keeping my kids safe. And I understand that's all necessary because we don't live in an ideal world. I want to say that on the other side of that, we really need to hold tech companies accountable. Why are you designing? platforms that can be abused so easily when there are entire stakeholders and victims' rights organizations that are more than willing to talk to them about safe design to bring the stakeholders to the table. I think there's a lot of independent sort of apps and nonprofits like Take It Down that have popped up to help survivors take images down. This is good. I would like to see, again, the industry and our government funding these resources, pouring like real money into them. And then I'm not ever going to be fully pro-policing. I mean, it has really let so many people down, but it would help if we actually took sexual violence as a serious problem in our criminal legal system. So we spend so, 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 so much money on algorithms to tell us where to go and police on building gang databases, on patrolling the border, on drones and wars, so on and so forth. And so little money on digital forensics, on sex crime units, just the rape kit backlog alone.
0: Rape kits sitting on a shelf waiting to be tested. Advocates say it comes down to a lack of resources. It's really a failure of the criminal justice system to treat sexual assault as a violent crime that it is.
1: That is the one thing that I will say I heard from law enforcement professionals is that they really don't have the skills, like they don't have the digital literacy to do this work and they often uh, don't have resources. So I'm not saying give cops more money, but reallocate the money (laughs) and take it seriously. We need institutional buy-in and also laws. The revenge porn laws that we have in place right now really mostly speak to adults. We don't have anything that really speaks to teenagers. It's still just cyberbullying, stalking, harassment. There's nothing specifically on image-based abuse. So yes, I understand the monitoring and the surveillance, because like you said, you have to. What you're saying is doing that is letting the tech
0: companies off the hook. Rather than lobbying for change, we're doing what we have to do to survive. I totally get that. I mean, I don't worry about what my son's doing. You know, there was a middle school in our area where 10 girls got expelled because they were sending nudes to a bunch of boys. I don't want to not know about what's, it's not what he's sending as much as it is like what he's receiving. And again, like I'm one of those moms that like I talk ad nauseum about things they don't want to talk about because I feel like it is important. I'm not like, mom, stop. I'm like that mom. I'll be like, you know, you have to ask consent to hold a girl's hand, right? But I have to. And the little things make up the big things. And I'm raising a girl and a boy. So when I say that to Milo in front of my daughter, she's also getting the lesson. But the lesson isn't on her. It's not her responsibility. It's all very tricky. Parenting is really hard.
1: It's very, very hard. And that's why we need to get everyone all the help. This is why I'm like, schools need to be involved and you need to talk to criminal legal professionals. Everyone has to play a role. And tech companies, like you can't leave it to the parents. There's also the assumption that somehow parents are more skilled than their kids. And honestly, sometimes they're not. They don't have the time. They don't have the resources. You unfortunately have had experience with image-based abuse and can speak to it, but that's not everyone. and so. This expectation that they're going to be able to navigate it well just because they're the parent, I think it's unfair.
0: I may be very pessimistic about this, but I don't have faith that the tech companies will do anything, nor will they legislate around it. They're banning books, for fuck's sake, that teach history or any sort of love story that's not conventional gender norms or sexuality norms. So like, why would they all of a sudden be like, you know what, we want to protect our young people? No. The only way to do that is to teach a factually based curriculum. And I don't have faith we're going to see that in my kids' scholastic careers. So we got to just do everything we can. But you know what? Let's talk about hope.
1: What gives you hope? Young people do give me hope. You know, when I started doing this work, I wasn't going to talk to teenagers. I was just going to talk about them. And sitting in a room multiple times over the course of two years and talking to them did give me hope. It made me realize that they are thinking about these things, that they are understanding what's happening, and if they, even if they don't always have the vocabulary to articulate it. I think when they mobilize, I mean, look how they've mobilized around the environment, how they've mobilized around gun control, right? I think when they mobilize, they can really, um, you know, I think I was comforted by their general willingness to think about these things. I just, I want us as adults to do better in the sense that I want us to provide them with all the skills and all the opportunities throughout their lifetimes to do this rather than policing them. I do think we're in this really conservative moment and the backlash that you're talking about is really real. But for me, the degrees of fascism also tend to speak to the gains that we make in posing a real threat. In the five years that I took to research and write this book, the awareness around image based abuse has exploded. And Me Too was part of that, absolutely. But also, people are just the very platforms that perpetuate this harm can also be really, really amazing spaces for organizing around them. And so, I think people's capacity to speak truth to power and to mobilize these platforms to their ends, despite of capital, despite of profit, despite of tech bros, well, I think that's where I have to put my faith in.
0: Anna, Jika, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. A 16 year old in Houston went to a party and had a drink that was spiked with something, at least that's what she's saying, and um, she was sexually assaulted as a result. She didn't know that she had been raped until uh, video and also images of the assault were leaked and also went throughout the school. She said the following I had no control. I didn't tell anyone to take my clothes off and do what they did to me. Now, uh, she has been mocked by her uh, peers. They've been making fun of her. They've been posting pictures on social media, doing poses as if they're uh, laying in a bed drunk after they've been raped. And so she is feeling terrible about this, not only because she's being mocked by her peers, but because the boys who were involved in this assault have not been charged at all.